Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18 this morning. I'm going to read those beginning with verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Let us pray. Father, we, we are grateful that Christ has done it all, that he has gone to the cross for us that we might live. As we sang, what, what a life, what a cost. And yet, we stand at the cross forgiven, and we stand before you in awe. And we ask that you would help us as we read, as we study, as we un- try to understand these things, that you would give us wisdom and understanding, not that it would puff us up, but, Father, that you would use it to build up your church, to glorify your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. London-based property millionaires Golda Becau was a widow and 88 years old when she died in 2004. Her estate, some 10 million British pounds worth, was left in her will to Kim Sing Man and his wife, B. Lian Man. Who were the Mans? Well, they happened to be the owners of her favorite Chinese food restaurant. As you can imagine, her relatives were incensed, and they mounted a challenge to the will in British High Court. But after reviewing the will and seeing it that it was duly written and carried out, the judge dismissed the family's claims and awarded the 10 million British pounds to the Sings. In 2011, a West Virginia man had a will drawn up in which he left all of his property to his wife. Six months later, they divorced. Less than a year later, he died. And according to West Virginia state law, a divorced spouse cannot inherit the property. It was lawfully his mother's property. But apparently the courts didn't pick up on this, and after six months passed, the ex-spouse sold the property to a couple, and then the mother came forward and, learning of the state law, challenged in court and won 
and the poor folks who had bought the property had to give it back, and it was awarded to the man's mother. Now, I say all of this not to amuse you or entertain you, but to show you that this is why many people, particularly contemporary writers and scholars, say Paul's argument here in Galatians 3, verse 15, when he says, I speak in terms of human uh, relations, that a will or covenant, a testament, once it's been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds to it or takes away from it. That he just didn't understand about contested wills. In fact, there are some who say contested wills is a biblical concept. And they go, of course, back to Jacob and Rebekah, quote-unquote, contesting the will uh, that they should inherit rather than Esau. And, of course, we know from our Thursday night plumb line class that that was not so because there was a promise from God that was not annulled and he would not allow it to be annulled. The right of inheritance was rightfully going to Jacob. Contested wills, in America anyway, is something that has become, I think, a lawyerly art form. But you can imagine that the most basic contest to a will is, it's not fair that you should get this and I didn't get this, or maybe back to the old, some of you my age, Smothers Brothers, well, mom always did like you best. <laughs> but Paul is writing about a man's will and testament. And he's trying to describe what people would understand in everyday life. And there are many who go back and try to find out, well, what kind of covenant or will or testament was Paul looking at? Roman? Greek? Hebrew? And I don't think we need to have a law degree from the 21st century or even the 1st century to figure this out or to understand I mean, in my own case, I understand that I need to add what's called a codicil to my will, that I am allowed to update it. Uh, I think the last time we looked at our will or drew up our will, my oldest son was five. He's now 35. I think it's time for us to review that will. That is something that we can do. So what is Paul saying here? Does, is he just, we just need to leave this out of our Bibles and say, you know, Paul got a little loopy here. Things in a will can be changed up until that will is duly ratified. In most cases, that ratification is when someone dies. And that will then would be if it is duly established, no one can revoke it or add to it. And Paul is saying, that is so in the case that I am arguing before you now. We've looked at spiritual dichotomies before. So far, we've seen several where Paul says, those depending on faith are the sons of Abraham. Those relying on the law are under a curse. The righteous, he says, shall live by faith. That was the statement of Abraham. But the law 
Paul says, is not of faith, since it requires performance in the keeping of its commands. So what is their issue here? What is Paul looking at in this paragraph, 15 through 18? I believe it comes down to our view, Paul's view, and understanding that view of redemptive history. The agitators, the, some call the Judaizers, were looking at the Galatians and other New Testament era believers and saying, you must complete your faith by submitting to the law. And perhaps being in Reformed church as we are, we, we kind of just, uh, we know that's not true. But do the agitators, did they have a basis for what they were saying? Is there a connection? And I think they stand on pretty strong ground for where they were. They look back to the Old Testament. They were Jews, by the way. And they would look back to the Old Testament and say, well, wait a minute, you're taking us back, Paul's taking us back to, to look at Genesis 12, the promising of many descendants, Genesis 15, uh, the, the cutting of the covenant, and later on in Genesis 17, don't forget that even though there was the promises coming in those earlier chapters, when we get into chapter 17, what does God require of Abraham but circumcision? And later on, the children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, those who followed him in the promise of the promised land, were told that they must keep the law of Moses. So they put these things together, and again, I think there is the logic here. Follow up your faith with circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. But Paul says the law cannot alter the terms of the relationship and the promise that God gave to Abraham. And the key word in this paragraph is the word promise. If you attended the Thursday night class or read the notes, you will see that even our brother Chuck and those that he quoted says, the covenant that God cut with Abraham was really a promise. Because it's not like a covenant that you might sign where you agree with another party, these are the things that you're going to do and I'm going to do and we're going to sign this thing and there's agreement between two. The agreement with Abraham was from one. It came from God himself. And what Paul is emphasizing is that that word came to Abraham through a promise, and that promise is unchangeable by its very nature. Verse 16 of our passage is sometimes identified as a parenthetical statement. It's, it's in a parenthesis. In other words, you could read verse 15 and go straight into verse 17, and you wouldn't miss the thread of Paul's argument. But, but it is a very powerful parenthetical statement 
because it identifies what's the promise that we're talking about here. And again, there are those who, who jump on Paul and say, man, he's just, he's not very precise, is he? Verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one. And they say, well, okay, is it a promise, Paul, or is it a covenant? Um, is it a will? Is it a testament? You know, you're talking about covenant here, and now you're using the word promise. What is it? Well, again, if we go back to Genesis 12 and 15, as I said, you would find that God did it all. It was his idea. It's a very one-sided covenant. But specifically, there is confusion. What is he referring to as the promise? Some go back to verse 14 when he says in that great passage that we looked at last week, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and he, he comes down to so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. But I think here Paul, in, in his argument, in, in his logic, he's saying, you know, wait a minute, let's go back to that promise. Let's go back to that promise in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. That's what I want to look at right now, because this, we're going to build on this thought. We are going to, to go on from this thought, but let's go back to the beginning of that promise. And I believe that promise could be identified that there would be many descendants of Abraham through faith. And it's promises in some of our versions, plural, because I believe that there was a, not a new promise, not something uh, different, but it was a reiteration at each stage, perhaps because Abraham needed it, but he's reiterating that promise that through you many descendants would come to the kingdom of God through faith. There are those who say, well, how can he use Old Testament scripture in this way? That's not the original context for these things. But Paul, again, is seeing the larger historical salvation context here. He can look back from this side of the cross and see the, the pattern. And he's helping us see how God has revealed progressively his salvation plan. There are those who would challenge Paul and say, doesn't he understand what a collective noun is? Surely he's been through fifth grade. But the fact is that Paul knows the difference between seed and seed, because he actually states it, doesn't he? I, I don't know how the people can challenge it, but I've read people saying, you know, he just doesn't understand. When we say family, that's a singular noun, but there can be a lot of people in that family. And Paul says, yeah, okay. But do you not understand what was actually spoken and who it was spoken to? I, I mean, whose name is on the will? Who, whose name is on the promise? Let's read verse 16, the beginning. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, he does not say, and two seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. 
The seed, singular, means to one particular seed, not many seeds, but to Christ. In other words, it's not our name on the will. It wasn't addressed to us. It was addressed to whom? Abraham and to Christ. It's Christ's name on the will. It says, to Christ. It says, in Him. And in salvation history, Paul says, God's promises are concentrated in one person. And it is Christ who is the seed. Through Him, the promises are fulfilled to the many. And I think in our day, there, there are those in the covenant theology camp and those in the dispensational theology camp who get this confused. We, we hear the idea of to our children, you know, covenant children, or, or to our descendants. But again, whose name is on the will? To Christ. Some say that Paul ignores the fulfillment to Abraham in the promised land. But again, Paul's vision is, is farther than ours. Paul's looking at when he, he sees that the promise was spoken to Abraham, yes. And, and part of those promises, including blessings to the children of Israel, that there would be the physical inhabitation of the promised land. But, but Paul is looking beyond. He's looking beyond and saying, it ain't, sorry, it's not about the land. It is a total fulfillment that all the nations would be blessed. I believe it was John Stott, and I'll have to paraphrase because I didn't write down his full quote, who says, how in the world can we think that Jews living in Jerusalem is going to bless the entire nations of the world. And I don't know, I, I'm still working on that one. Why they need to be in Israel and whose property it really is. And I'm not the one to solve that. But what I see is Paul is taking us beyond that and saying that your vision needs to be on what the promise was and to whom it was given. And so he moves on into verse 17. The illustration from 15, speaking in human relations, now comes to his fuller argument in verse 17. In other words, Paul is arguing from the lesser to the greater, from the weak to the strong. God's covenant is like a human will in that if it's duly ratified, it cannot be annulled by any later document. The Abrahamic covenant, or I prefer the Abrahamic promise, takes, as Paul says here, what we would call temporal priority over the law of Moses. Meaning in time, there's two good reasons why it cannot be annulled or replaced by the law of Moses. First, he says, the law came 430 years later. Again, there are some who challenge Paul's arithmetic. 
that it was, they were 400 years in Egypt, but before that there were the patriarchs. And then after that there was a time in the wilderness, and I would say, okay, in my simple mind, we talk like that, do we not? How old is your car? Well, it's about <clears throat> 28 years old. <laughs> it might be 27 years and six months. I don't know. It runs like a 40-year-old car. <laughs> we talk like that. I think what Paul is trying to do is show us that space of time that the promise was given, and over 400 years later, then came the law, and it cannot replace or annul the promise. It is a timeless action because it is based on a promise, not on the law. But he also uses the phrase, it does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified, or some of your versions, ratified beforehand. It's in a state of ratification. It means it is a officially valid, and it is sealed, we might say, until the day the promise is delivered. The law does not change the promise. It cannot cause the promise to lose its power. It cannot make the promise invalid. It cannot render the promise inoperative. It cannot destroy it. It cannot replace it. Paul, I believe, is adamant in this point. It does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God so as to annul the promise. What do we know about a promise? Well, very simply, it's not a law. It is a promise. It becomes operative by faith and by faith alone. A promise is given to us. The law is what we do. A promise is not what we do. It is what God has done. It is a very one-sided covenant. It is a one-sided promise given by God and ratified by Him. In verse 18, Paul gives us the reasons why he camps here, why he is strong here, because he says it's a matter of principle. Essentially, he says in 18, if it's a law, then it's not a promise. Why, was, why can the law not annul the promise? Because the law and the promise are mutually exclusive. See, the promise connotes an idea that is not compatible with law. A promise is a decision that someone makes to commit something or even himself to another person. A law introduces an idea that is not compatible with promises because a law operates on the principle of doing. 
the principle of performance, the principle of works. And Paul introduces a new word into verse 18 that helps us understand this incompatibility. He says, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. The promise involves inheritance. Usually in the Old Testament, that idea of inheritance refers to the land, but here Paul refers to the inheritance of Christ himself. God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Well, whose name's on the will? Christ. He granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. That idea that comes through here that is incompatible with the law, but is very compatible with promise, is grace. It's a gracious giving by God himself. In Romans 11, Paul says in the context of those verses there, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If the law altered the promise, it wouldn't just be modified, it would be canceled. It can't just be, well, there is an alteration, an addition, a codicil, something that kind of takes part of it. Uh, no, Paul is saying it would no longer be a promise. Grace would no longer be grace. I think Paul argues that the law cannot be a channel of blessing. It cannot be a channel of inheritance. And some of you are already asking the question because you're sharp. You're saying, well, what's the purpose of the law? Okay, hold on next week for verse 19 when he says, so why then the law? But here he says, the nature of God is gracious giving to undeserving sinners great blessings because we're his people. He's not invalidating the law, but he's showing us that the law is not a promise. In Romans 4, he says, To the one who works, his wage is not a favor, but what is due. But to the one who believes, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. As Paul ends this section, the second part of verse 18, he says, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And the word order in Greek is very important. It would read like this. To Abraham, through a promise, granted God. To Abraham, the man in the scripture who's known as the friend of God, the one who is very closely related to the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of the redemptive history, that we have to understand Abraham in order to understand the promise spoken to him and to his seed. To Abraham, 
through a promise. It tells us the means by which it has been given. It didn't come by the law. It came through a promise. And then we have the verb, and it kind of stands out starkly in the Greek, granted. It, it tells us the duration of the gift. It's complete and permanent because it comes from a gracious oh. It comes from God. He, Paul puts him last in order to emphasize. I, I, I do like the way our English Bibles say it, that great phrase that always kind of stops me and, 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 and makes me have tears in my eyes when, when Paul uses phrases like this, but God. And that's the emphasis in the Greek, God. To Abraham, through a promise, granted God. And it points us back for emphasis that he is the one who did this thing. He is the source. He is the gracious God. He is the giver of a great, great promise. Let us pray. Our Father, these, these are things high and wonderful. Oh, that you would give us the capacity to hear them, to understand them, to, to believe them and walk in them. Father, we ask that, that you would, again, truly build your church, make her strong, make her full of faith, make her full of love and, and service to one another, but also full that we might be light and salt in this world, and that you would use us to influence those around us, our families, our, our colleagues, our co-workers, for good and for your glory. We ask that you would do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction. From Colossians chapter 1, in the midst of Paul's prayer for believers, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen.